Welcome to Go Behind the Ballot, a podcast where two Texas moms go on an educational quest to demystify Texas politics. Join me, Nicole Abshire, and my co-host, Claire Campos O'Neill, as we deep dive into the most burning issues, hear stories from candidates, and offer hope in these challenging political times. Let's saddle up and go behind the ballot. Hi, everyone. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Go Behind the Ballot. I'm Claire Campos O'Neill. And I am Nicole Abshire. Oh, man, we have an information-packed episode for you today discussing critical race theory and yet so many other things that really inform this big culture war phrase that's on the scene these days. And in order to learn more about this, we had Dr. Tiffany Pewitt come and speak with us. And she is awesome. She does many, many things. She's a professor at St. Edward's and she teaches religious studies classes. I wish I could be her student. I would love to sit in on her classes, especially after our conversation. She's also the executive director of the Institute for Diversity and Civic Life. Nicole, tell me more about Tiffany because you're the one who was like, we got to talk to her. She's so great. Well, I feel really lucky. It feels one of like one of those accidental, not accidental kind of things. I mean, you know, I I did what we all do when Google searched and ran across her and thank goodness she was available and said yes. We didn't know at that point how informative and fascinating the conversation would be. So it just feels like one of those good luck podcasting moments. So enjoy everyone because she will fill your brain with all sorts of fascinating information And I promise you will walk away having learned something new and gained some sort of new perspective. Yeah, this is a great one. So check out our episode and our interview with Dr. Tiffany Pewitt. All right. Hello, everyone. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Go Behind the Ballot. We are really eager to jump into this conversation with Dr. Tiffany Pewitt to talk about critical race theory and how that is impacting Texans. So hello. How are you? Hi, I'm great and really happy to be here. Yes, thank you for joining us. There's a lot to learn here. I was telling Nicole before, as we were preparing for this interview, I was listening to all these different podcasts, and I still feel like I haven't had a very concise idea of what this is. So we're going to try to do that and tackle this for our listeners. So we like to get started learning a little bit more about our guests and their origin stories and how they came to the work that they do. So can you just tell us a little bit about you and your upbringing and if you're from Texas? Sure. Interestingly, I have some deeper Texan roots, but I've only lived here. I've lived here about 13 years now. I grew up in Oklahoma. My dad's side of the family was from Texas, though. So I had some familiarity with Texas. After college, I lived on the East Coast for about 10 years mostly like New York, Boston. I spent a little time outside of Toronto and then ended up moving to Texas in 2010. And when I came here, I thought that I knew Texas, but I realized that Texas that I knew was from the early 80s (laughs) and that Texas had changed a lot. So there was a lot for me to learn about Texas and discover and explore. And it was actually really exciting to discover that I was coming to a place that was completely different than I had thought it was going to be. And also, I came here, I had worked in nonprofits for a while, and then I did a PhD in religious studies. 
When I came here, I started out teaching at some local universities. I taught at Trinity University in San Antonio. I taught at St. Edwards University. I still teach there part-time now. But then in 2015, I started the Institute for Diversity and Civic Life, which is a nonprofit organization dedicated to building a more inclusive Texas through storytelling, research, and education. I went down the rabbit hole of the website for the Institute of, oh gosh, I want to get the name right, Civic and... Diversity and Civic Life, IDCL. (laughs) IDCL, got it. It's a really fascinating website you've built. There's so much to take in. So I would love for you to share more with us. I'm specifically curious about ethnographic interviewing and then storytelling and oral history, like how that all connects. Yeah. So one of our bigger projects that we work on is called Religions Texas. It's an oral history initiative and a digital archive. And the main idea with Religions Texas is that Texas is this very diverse state. There are many different people who live in Texas, but larger narratives of Texas often don't acknowledge that diversity, and they don't include the voices of all the people who live here. So we've used religion as a lens to explore the diversity of Texas. We've done interviews with people from many different religious communities, but with a primary focus on those that are often kind of left out or receive less attention in public discourse. And we interview folks and gather their stories. We try to create a space where people can tell their stories on their own terms, tell their stories in ways in which they'd like to be known and understood, recognizing also that there are a lot of minoritized groups in Texas that they experience very frequently being talked about rather than having the opportunity to represent themselves. So we want to kind of shift that dynamic. And with that as well, we hope that we can bring nuance, dispel stereotypes, and help people understand just really how diverse and complex the state really is. I'm curious, what drew you to religious studies? What is it about religion that like really interests you? Yeah, good question. I think I started out when I was much younger. Well, I think I really started out as a kid, just kind of always interested in questions about existence and the meaning of life and things like this. And when I was in college, I was drawn to thinking more about kind of theology and spiritual issues. But then I did a master's degree in ethics. And then I started working at an interfaith organization in New York. And we did programs where we would take people to visit different religious communities and learn about those communities. I started working there in mid-2002. So that was very much a post-9-11 context in New York City. And so there was a lot of interest in learning about religious difference as a means of kind of responding to the climate of fear and misinformation that had developed right after September 11th. And I really loved doing that work. But at the same time, While I was doing that work, I felt like there were some kind of deeper questions, especially around sort of power imbalances, power dynamics that we weren't always able to really address. And so that led me to a PhD program (laughs) where I could explore some of those questions. And so I've been really interested for a while now in thinking about how diversity, religious diversity in particular, but this really extends to cultural diversity, racial diversity, ethnic diversity, these things are all intertwined. 
how they get negotiated in our society. What are the kinds of political and social dynamics that determine how people get to experience their religious, racial, ethnic, cultural identities? And I find religion is a really interesting, especially thinking of religion in terms of identity, a really interesting lens to use that quickly takes you down the path of exploring other kinds of identities as well. How timely with like religious freedom and yeah, this talk that we have. (laughs) Yeah. I was just listening to an interview last night with Salman Bojani, who is one of the first two Muslim Texas representatives to be sworn in. And he was talking about that one of his early priorities will be looking at religious parity so that Muslim imams have the same or similar rights to Christian leadership, that they can perform marriage ceremonies, that they can do. And it was eye-opening to think, oh my gosh, that's something I had never considered before. But of course, (laughs) right, there should be religious parity in that way. So anyway, I really see the connection to what you're talking about in a way that I don't know I necessarily would have before. Yeah, that's very interesting. And it is exciting as well that Texas has a really large Muslim population, although it's not exactly accurate to say it's a Muslim population because it's made up of many different communities and they're very diverse and they represent different cultures and ethnicities and races and different sects of Islam as well. But these are growing communities and they're a growing part of Texas, but they haven't had a lot of representation and they haven't been seen. And frequently when we hear about them in public discourse, It has been when some Texas elected officials have made Islamophobic remarks and really kind of misrepresented and marginalized many of these communities. So it's very exciting that there are now Muslim representatives in the Texas legislature and seeing these communities have this kind of growing power and space to represent themselves. I love it. I'm already appreciating the work you do because something Nicole and I talk about in this podcast is challenging our assumptions, sort of stepping back and being like, why do we just assume when we say faith, like we recently had an episode about abortion, that means like Texas Christianity, like our brain just sort of short circuits there. So we're trying to step back and be like, what are we talking about? And what should we be talking about to be more inclusive? Because that's so important, especially as you're saying with our super diverse state. All right, Nicole, should we move into critical race theory? I want to back up just a teeny bit. I would love for you to really talk about how diverse Texas is. I think that maybe this is a good moment to kind of unpack that idea that Texas is a diverse state, that it isn't just, frankly, a white Christian state. Yeah, absolutely. Well, one interesting data point is that Texas has been a majority-minority state since 2004. That means that at least in terms of kind of racially, ethnically, that whites have been less than 50% of the population for almost 20 years now, (laughs) for the last 19 years. But you wouldn't know it to look at our halls of power, because when we look at demographics of the Texas legislature, they don't mirror the demographics of the population as a whole. Additionally, we have for a very long time in Texas been a top immigrant destination We've also, at one point in time, and this has changed in more recent years, but we were a top destination for refugee resettlement. And that's just kind of thinking about the dynamics of movement in this country. From the perspective of religious diversity, Texas has one of the largest populations of Muslims of any state in the country. 
Religious demographics are kind of interesting because religious identity isn't asked in the U.S. Census. So all the information we have about religious demographics comes from university or kind of private think tank research. And so there's kind of some competing demographics. So I've seen surveys that say California has the largest population of Muslims and Texas has the second largest. And then I've seen another survey that says that Texas has the largest and California has the second largest. So I can't say for certainty which one is correct, but I can say, I think with certainty, I can say we have one of the largest populations of Muslims. We have the second largest population of Hindus. We have one of the largest Arab populations of any state in the country. Now, of course, if look at percentage of the population of Texas as a whole, there's still a very small percentage of the population as a whole. But yet Texas is so huge. When we talk about small percentages, we can still be talking about like over a million people, but still many people, more people than live in some states in this country. Additionally, another interesting data point as well is when surveys are done asking Texas about their religious identities, the third largest religious identity group in Texas is no religion. And I think that's something that also gets lost in conversations about who Texans are. So to describe Texans as mostly white evangelicals is really kind of erasing the experiences. I mean, first, it's inaccurate. But then secondly, there are many white evangelicals here, but there's so many other people. And so if you just focus on that, it really erases the other identities and perspectives and experiences of many Texans. Thank you for unpacking that. (laughs) I just read or we read a Tribune article recently that was comparing the actual demographics of Texas to the demographics of the Texas legislature. And they did a great job of explaining it, but then also showing infographics. And so it was really fascinating to see the disparity between our representation and the actual population of Texas. So I'm grateful that you can help highlight the reality of the population of Texas, especially as we think about voting and how we want our leadership to reflect the actual folks who live here. Yeah, Nicole, that's a good plug for our social media because Nicole made a really wonderful TikTok showing this article and the graphics and making comments about how the representation doesn't really reflect our population. So follow us on social media. (laughs) And vote. (laughs) And vote, of course. Yeah. Yeah. If you are eligible, please vote. Well, let's transition into critical race theory. We're really curious just to know what is it? What isn't it? I'm sure there's lots of different ideas, but tell us what it is from, I guess, academic definition. Critical race theory is, it really started out as a pretty specialized area of research and inquiry in the field of legal studies. And it started with legal scholars. Some of the kind of major names of folks that founded this area of inquiry are people like Kimberly Crenshaw, Derek Bell. They started asking questions about ways in which the legal system and the criminal justice system both reproduce dynamics of racism and also what was very much just kind of shaped by racism. So they were really interested in thinking about structural racism. And so this was moving beyond thinking about racism as a matter of individual prejudice, but thinking about like something that's really embedded in the way that the law is enforced, just these simple questions that Black Americans and white Americans don't necessarily have the same experience in our legal system. Why is that? What does that look like? 
And then, of course, Kimberly Crenshaw also, in doing this work, she coined the really helpful term intersectionality, which is the idea that basically that our identities all intersect one another. And so one's race, one's gender, we can extend this to to thinking about sexual orientation and religion and other kinds of identities that they all mediate one another, that they're never experienced in isolation. So if we're thinking about something like racism, we shouldn't look at that siloed away from or in exclusion from, say, sexism or other kinds of forms of inequality. But they started doing this work in the 1980s and were doing this work for a very long time. I've been doing this work for a very long time, mostly in the field of legal studies, but folks in other fields have kind of picked up on that theory I learned about it in classes I took in religious studies because a lot of their theorizing was really helpful to think about what other kinds of institutions in the United States have been shaped by racism and maybe kind of reinforce those racial dynamics. And so we read from critical race theory to think about how does this apply to thinking about the way religion functions in the United States. But it's all been a very kind of academic and when I say academic, I mean like maybe you would study it as an undergrad, but mostly graduate students, researchers, scholars are really thinking about these kinds of issues. But if we were going to reduce it down to like one core concept, critical race theory centers on the idea that the real power of racism in this country is that it is structural, that our problem is not that people just hold personal prejudices. Our problem is that all of our American institutions, social institutions, the education system, the economy, criminal justice system, that they are all structured around racism, white supremacy, these kind of hierarchical thinkings where some groups are dominant and have power and other groups are kind of stuck in this sort of perpetual underclass. I feel like maybe might be helpful is to like even dig more a little in on examples of what I want to use the right phrasing here. But like you mentioned the economic system. So like how would an examination of critical race theory play out in the economic system? So a really great example of this, and there are some scholars that more recently have done research in this area, is looking at housing and looking at the practice of redlining. And so the practice of redlining, of course, was written into local zoning ordinances and basically said that it was also incorporated into banking, that there were certain parts of town that where houses were and property were considered not valuable and therefore banks would not give mortgages to people to buy property in those parts of town. And these weren't arbitrary parts of town. These were parts of town where people of color live primarily, especially Black Americans, but not just Black Americans. This also happened, especially in places like Texas, that Latinx Texans also experienced this as well. And so this led to undervaluing of property just difficulty in buying property. And then, of course, that impacts generational wealth because a major way in which Americans accumulate generational wealth is through property, through owning property and then building equity, selling it and making money off of that, passing it down to children, that property becomes part of inheritances that people can give to their children. So if you have entire groups of people that are shut out of participating in those economic activities, then that really impacts the way that they get to participate in the economy as a whole. 
That's just one example. And part of that as well, in looking at the history of redlining, for sure that there are many parts of Austin that actually have like deeds of houses or properties that were restricted to only whites could own these properties. There are all of these kinds of policies and they're not always passed at like a state or federal legislative level. And so sometimes they're unseen in that way because they can be so localized and they have left folks out of opportunities. They've limited their access. And then that has further kind of reinforced racial hierarchies in this country. And racial hierarchies in this country have also been connected with class hierarchies too, because there has always been this connection between race and economics and at least economic opportunity. So Tiffany, can I ask you, I think the way I'm conceptualizing this right now, it feels like this is an inquiry, like it's a framework of sort of asking questions. It's like if you look at outcomes for, and I'll be very basic, for the Black population versus the white population, like why are the outcomes different, for instance, in the criminal justice system? And then you just start inquiring, like, where are these differences playing out? Like, why are sentences different in maybe the same criminal charges? And it's almost like the only difference could be attributed to race because all sort of other things are equal. I know that I'm like, I'm realizing I'm kind of, I don't know if I'm oversimplifying. I'm just trying to, (laughs) I'm trying to put it in my own words. (laughs) That's what I'm trying to do. I guess what I'm landing on is that it feels like it's a study of inquiry. It's like, why are outcomes different for people of different races? And inevitably, or often, what can be discovered and what is found is that there are systemic differences for people, the ways that these institutions treat folks, there are evidence-based differences. So again, like something that you alluded to, it's not about individual sort of feelings and actions. This is institutional. Yeah. And I think if the force of racism were really driven purely by individual attitudes and behaviors, then I think we would see a lot more social equality right now than we do. And this is a question that people have asked. We have the civil rights movement in the mid-20th century. We start to have more and more people recognize the problems of racist ideas. We see some changes to our society, but yet there are ways in which there's still a significant amount of lingering inequality and what accounts for that. And critical race theory says, well, what accounts for that is that the force of racism is really about how it works structurally. And it's not just about those individual attitudes. That If we get every single person in the United States to say, I believe that everyone's inherently equal, that doesn't actually change racism in this country. We have to change those social structures. I really love this example of housing and redlining and how that's created a wealth gap in this nation. So what's like the opposition say? Because to me, something like that feels very fact-based, evidence-based, like Nicole's saying, that these deeds said like only white people can be sold these properties. So that would exclude many other people from being able to build wealth, have property, pass it on generationally. How do they counter that, I guess, is what I'm thinking. That's a good question. I actually haven't spent a ton of time like looking at the counter arguments to this particular issue, such as on redlining. But speaking more broadly about some of the counter arguments that I hear about when people are trying to push back against ideas of racism embedded in various kinds of U.S. structures, I hear people say things like, that was a long time ago, 
there's been enough time for us to get past this. The reason we're not past this is because, or the reason that there are people that are still not doing as well, say, economically, is because of their own individual volition. They're not trying hard enough. They're not working hard enough that there's some kind of individual personal flaw. That's one of the big arguments. Resident. <laughs> yes, those kinds of arguments. And then interestingly, this connects to my area of research, which is thinking about the relationship between religion and race and structural racism. And one thing that I have seen is that amongst certain Christian theologies, particularly in evangelical Christianity, there has been this tendency to want to say that racism is a sin and it's an individual sin. Sin is always an individual issue. So it's always a matter of individual attitude or behavior that an individual can repent, an individual can ask for forgiveness, can pray, can change their attitude and have a different attitude. But that's always the place where our social problems lie. It's always about the individual, and it's always the individual that's going to change it. And interestingly, in 2019, the Southern Baptist Convention actually passed a resolution saying that critical race theory was problematic because it's not biblical. And the reason that it's not biblical, I mean, in some ways, this is kind of funny because it's like, well, of course, it's not biblical. It actually part of legal theory. (laughs) But their whole point in it not being biblical and being inconsistent with biblical reasoning was that biblical reasoning locates sin in the individual and doesn't recognize this idea of structural racism, of institutional racism, is not discussed in the Bible. And so that makes it a secular ideology, not a religious ideology, and therefore something that biblically-oriented folks like Southern Baptists should reject or be suspicious or skeptical of. And when you have a large denomination like the Southern Baptist Church pass a resolution like this, that influences people. And these kinds of ideas that they get preached in pulpits. There's a really amazing book called White Too Long by Robert Jones. And he talks about this kind of long history. He talks about the Southern Baptist Church and really their long history of using religious language and theological language and rhetoric to uphold first slavery and then segregation and basically white supremacy and that they were have been a major force in reinforcing white supremacy in this country. And I think this is something that even folks who don't study religion need to keep in mind in thinking about kind of the ongoing structural racism is just how deeply influential religious ideology is in many people's lives. And so once somebody has this idea that there's a way of thinking about the world that's determined by God, it can be difficult for them to kind of step back and really question that. And so that gets so deeply rooted and really kind of taken for granted and people can't see beyond that. And I think this doesn't entirely explain some of the resistance to critical race theory, but I think this is a big piece of it. I'm having light bulb moments over here. That connection to individual sin and just in general institutional harm, like there's so much then of course that makes sense. 
sexual scandals, all sorts of things that can easily be dismissed as individual problems rather than institutional suddenly make a lot more sense. Yeah. Even I'm thinking about like environmental issues and the climate, like how we can sort of individually, I can do what I can do, but systemically, that's almost how it feels. Like you're just sort of absolved of trying to fix these bigger, massive problems. Yeah. And sometimes the theological language then gets framed in terms of there are problems in this life that won't be there in the next life or in heaven that one just needs to be focused on their own salvation, that you just try to be a good person in this life. That's all that you can do to be a good Christian. You can't fix the rest of it. You can just focus on yourself. And we see a lot of that kind of language generated, especially amongst a lot of evangelical Christian groups. So it's all about when we look at problems, social problems, the answer is personal piety, prayer, spirituality, personal piety, and not action to actually change policy and structure and things like this. Yeah, same to Nicole. This is making a lot of sense for me because we've had some episodes, one specifically that talked about Christian nationalism, but that's kind of been a through line in our conversations. And this tension between those who believe in this personal piety is the answer, being very almost antagonistic to like more social justice Christians. There's like a real tension there. And it's starting to make sense why that's there, why they're so like, not only am I going to be personally pious, you shouldn't be doing these other things. It's kind of where I'm thinking. So, Yeah. Another really great book that talks about this is Jesus and John Wayne by Kristen Dumay. That's an excellent one as well. And if you read White Too Long and Jesus and John Wayne and kind of couple them together, you get this really interesting picture of how white evangelical ideologies are really shaping American politics today. For anybody listening, we'll put that in the episode <laughs> description. I have one more thing, and I know that we're really trying to focus on CRT, but this is quite the journey we're on here, which is that is there anything explicitly said about protecting the institution? Like, I'm wondering if that part is just sort of a result of kind of the individual sin that we're talking about, or is there anything explicitly said and promoted about protecting the institution. When you say institution, do you mean like institutional racism? Or? No, I'm sorry. I mean, like, for instance, if I were a member of the Southern Baptist Church, would I be explicitly encouraged to protect my church at all costs? Or is that sort of the result of the preaching about how sin is individual? Yeah. And this is an interesting point. Like, you're right. On one hand, there is all this emphasis on individual faith, individual piety. But at the same time, the church is also really important. And part of that, too, is that the church, the protection of the church, the cultivation of the church, that is biblical. So for many evangelicals and white evangelicals in particular, there's so much emphasis on biblicism and the idea that their ideology needs to reflect their interpretation of the Bible. And there's a lot in the Bible about building and growing and maintaining the church. So that part, that institution can be justified to protect that. Other kinds of more nuanced sort of institutions, especially more modern ones that wouldn't have been thought of during the times the Bible was written, that those become this kind of big question of like, do we really need to pay attention to that? <laughs> Thank you for indulging that. That's definitely going to be the thing that I walk away thinking a lot about. Already so much to think about, <laughs> so but we're going to press on and give you some more. 
You touched on this a little bit about the role of how religion, sort of this evangelical Christian ideology is infiltrating our American politics. And I think that's really happening here in Texas. So can we talk a little bit about some of the bills that are sort of infused with that? I think maybe specifically House Bill 3979, which passed in the last legislature. Yeah, and SB3 as well, both of those. These bills are really interesting. Both of these are often called anti-critical race theory bills, and that's a way to understand them. But they don't actually mention critical race theory by name within the language of the bill. Rather, what we see, it's very subtle, but we see the subtle emphasis on what they really outlaw is the idea of thinking structurally and systemically. They also prohibit negative depictions of the United States so that we have to tell a story in a way that supports American exceptionalism. Not that they're using that exact language, of course, that it's problematic to talk about racism as anything other than kind of individual opinion or belief or behavior. And then they also include language about, and this part is so fascinating to me, they include language that prohibits teachers from creating discussions about provocative current events that might make students feel uncomfortable. Part of why this is so fascinating to me is because educational researchers have been telling us for a very long time, and also many of us know this from kind of anecdotal stories from folks, that students of color have been feeling uncomfortable in classrooms for many, many years in Texas. (laughs) And this bill was not written to address their discomfort. This was written to address the discomfort that white students might feel in having to think about their racial identities and also think about how their racial identities are tied to these structures of dominance and oppression. Can I just pause and ask real quick? Oh, sure. So what are some of the consequences if teachers do violate these bills? That's a good question. I'm not sure... I guess I don't know for sure the entire answer to this, but I'm not sure that this has all been exactly laid out. So my sense is that the consequences right now are creating this culture of intimidation, that people think their jobs could be on the line, that individual teachers could get fired, that school districts could be sued, that the TEA could intervene in some kind of way if they are found violating this law. I'm not exactly sure that we have cases, and you might actually have found, I know you've been recently doing a lot of research on this, and so you might have the answer to this more so than I do, but I'm not sure that there have been cases of actual violations yet. It seems like there's been more districts trying to create mandates in anticipation of violation, and then these mandates are wildly problematic. They say things like suggesting that both sides of the Holocaust should be taught or that later legislators have walked back and said, oh, we never intended this. We never intended the bill to be interpreted this way. But some of the power of the bill is that it's really vaguely worded. And so what it means to really enforce this, what it really encompasses is uncertain. So it's really just had this kind of chilling effect that it's left a lot of districts and teachers feeling really uncertain. And I think we can't overlook as well that this is all happening in a general climate of this sort of late pandemic. Is that what we call our times we're in right now? I don't think we're quite post-pandemic. Late pandemic, maybe? 
Fingers crossed. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> People are still, I think, in many ways, actually reeling from the past few years. And public schools in particular have really struggled. Teachers have really struggled with online learning, with the kinds of risk that they've had to deal with and manage around health, around both the thinking about kind of COVID mitigation and things, but also the mental health issues that students have had, that teachers have had. So many teachers leaving their jobs, we're seeing this kind of loss of teachers across districts and across the state. So we already have this environment where teachers are exhausted, they feel demoralized. They also generally, I think, feel that they have so many state mandates that they're not given the freedom to structure their classrooms and teach in the way that they would like to according to their own teacher training. Instead, they have these mandates from above and from the state legislature. And then this just adds one more thing. And so in addition to all these things, by the way, make sure that you never have a conversation in your class that might make a white student feel uncomfortable. And that's pretty burdensome for teachers. And so I think there are many that have just decided that they just need to play it safe, that they don't have the energy to kind of battle this out. And so if there's a conversation that they would have once had about racism civil rights, social justice, oppression, that maybe it's just safer to not have those conversations anymore. I find that disturbing because if we can't have those conversations in public school classrooms, this is the one place where public schools are the place where we have children as representatives of our public coming together and getting to know people who are different from them and learning about what it means to be ideally a good citizen. And so if we can't have those conversations in our public school classrooms, where can we have them? (laughs) I just realized something. (laughs) I used to teach elementary school and in second grade, one of our yearly exercises, we would do the blue eye, brown eye experiment, which for folks who don't know, I'm trying to remember exactly how we did it now, but basically you would choose an out group and We wouldn't be as kind. I would do things like ignore, if we had chosen that the outgroup was kids with brown eyes, I would ignore their requests to get a drink of water. And we didn't do it for very long during the day, but it was incredibly effective. And I just realized I probably wouldn't feel like I was able to do that anymore if I was still teaching school. I would be so worried about the blowback that I have a feeling we would probably self-censor that activity. We also did a big Black History Month unit amongst my second grade team. It was like one of our favorite things of the year. And I'm wondering now how we would have potentially changed that or altered it to sort of stay safe. I don't know that we would have. We were a teeny bit rebellious, so maybe we wouldn't have stopped any of this stuff. But we would have done it knowing that we were taking a risk. That was worrisome. Now it's like really sinking in, I think, what this kind of chilling effect actually would look like and feels like for people. I would imagine too, being a teacher that you get so much excitement in the room from this critical thinking, this discomfort, which hopefully leads to growth and then deeper learning. And to take that away, I mean, that's to take away another joy of teaching and being in the classroom. So yeah, just one more thing to add to the negative side of being in the teaching profession. And there's some really kind of complicated dynamics at play, too, in that the State Board of Education, I can't remember exactly which year, but not that long ago, they added Mexican-American studies as an elective in high school classes. And so 
when you have some of these classes that have been added to the kind of official Texas curriculum, and then you turn around and say, be really careful how you talk about race, and you can't really talk about structural racism. I mean, how would you teach about the history of Mexican-Americans, especially in Texas? Can you talk about the very well-documented history of the Texas Rangers violently repressing Mexicans and Tejanos? It's part of Texas history, and it's well-documented. We know that this happened. But will someone, if this gets taught, is will a parent complain? Will someone say it violates this law? What will that mean? And how will that be addressed? And I think at the moment, there are really just a lot of questions. So I don't think that the law has been elaborated and that enforcement has been determined in a really clear way that teachers understand like what it really means to kind of follow that law. So why did they put all this time and energy and effort into passing these laws? That's a really good question. Well, one piece of it is that this hasn't just happened in Texas. These laws have passed across the country. And they were initially generated by ALEC, the American Legislative Executive Committee. Does that seem right? I'm familiar with ALEC, but I I forget. (laughs) But it's an acronym, A-L-E-C. American Legislative Exchange Council. Exchange Council. Okay. (laughs) So, and for those listening who aren't familiar with ALEC, ALEC is an organization that has been in existence for quite some time now. And they basically write kind of templates of legislation that they're pretty much, I would say, kind of centered at best more conservative, but very often what I think we could safely call right-wing. And they share these templates with state legislatures around the country. And then these bills, then you'll see similar bills getting introduced in multiple states around the same time. And that's the case with the anti-critical race theory bills, that this didn't just happen in Texas and Alec played some kind of role in drafting some of the ideas or kind of parameters around what these bills could look like. I actually don't know enough. That would be an interesting thing to look into is how closely Texas's bills look to the kinds of things that Alec put out. And if the House or Senate bill basically just pulled from that or it kind of added in some other things. I haven't investigated that. So I think part of it is that this is a larger national movement. But in Texas, especially, I think that we have long seen a lot of contention around who gets to dominate the public square. And I interpret a lot of this contention as well as being influenced by the really dynamic growth of Texas and that Texas is just becoming more and more diverse. We're growing and we're becoming more and more diverse. We've been a minority majority state for almost 20 years now, and we're not going back. That's not going to change. And so I think that people who have historically been in positions of power in Texas that are primarily white evangelicals want to retain that power And that there is the option to just try to represent the needs and interest of your constituents, but it doesn't seem like that's the road that a lot of folks are choosing to take. And so instead, they are kind of drumming up this sort of culture war rhetoric and this idea that our, our, of course, not meaning everyone, but just this sort of select dominant group, that our values are under attack and that we have to protect our values. In some ways, this is not exactly new. We saw this rhetoric come up in the civil rights movement. 
we saw the most Confederate monuments in this country were built in response to the growing civil rights movement in the 1950s. So these aren't exactly new things. These are, I think this is kind of a long pattern in U.S. history. But Texas in particular, it's interesting. I think sometimes the national media gives too much attention to dominant groups in Texas. And so they'll cover Texas as if this sort of right-wing white evangelical perspective really does represent all of Texans. And I think when that happens, what they're missing is that this is a response to the growing power of people who aren't white, who aren't evangelical, who have different perspectives about what it means to be a Texan, what Texan is, what Texan should be. So it's about trying to kind of double down and, and hold on to power in many ways. You're kind of answering this, but I want to ask it and then pass it off to Nicole. This question keeps coming up in my mind as we're having this conversation, but what is so wrong about thinking systemic, about racism systemically? I'm just curious why just thinking about it is there's such a concerted effort to crush it. Like we're not even going to think about that because to me, understanding this critical race theory, the ideology behind it makes me feel a little bit better. Like, okay, like this is why things are the way they are. It's not my fault, your fault. It's the air we breathe. And yet you have these other folks who are just like, don't even think about that. Why is that so scary? That's such a good question. And I think there could be multiple answers to this. I think one answer could be as simple as it conflicts with some people's ideologies that they just feel like that they can't question. But I think a more complex answer to that might be that somehow some folks recognize that once you start really unpacking and questioning our social structures, we might actually have to change them. And that might actually create, that might really change our world. I, for one, am up for changing a lot of our social structures. And I feel like we could use some change in many different ways. And I have no problem with that. But I know not everyone feels that way. And there are people out there that feel really threatened by that, that they think that it's going to be destabilizing. They think that somehow it's just going to lead to chaos. Or, and maybe this is a more kind of cynical response, they think that they personally are going to lose money, power, status, something like that. And they're not up for giving up anything that they have. And so I think that by saying, let's not question, and in some ways, it's just like no free thinking, no questioning, that it's, again, a way of like sort of doubling down and trying to maintain a status quo that I think the reality is, the time is up for that status quo. <laughs> There's nothing to be done about that. That's just where we are. It's just changing. We're not who we used to be. Time is moving forward. We're more diverse society than ever before, facing new problems that we haven't faced in the past. And a lot of people have different perspectives on those. And there's just not going to be going back to 1950. But that's not stopping people from trying. <laughs> And this also relates, too, to thinking about legislative responses to LGBTQ identities. And I think that they can be understood in a very similar kind of way that if you really start questioning gender hierarchies, then all of our hierarchies could fall apart. <laughs> you know? Yeah, we have some great episodes on gender identity. So if that piques your interest, go back and listen. Nicole, what last thoughts do you have? Oh my gosh, I have so many like notes. <laughs> oh, oh my gosh. 
Well, I mean, I think for me too, where I'm at at this point in the conversation is thinking about how all of these things are so interconnected, right? Talk about intersectionality. Here we go. Like I'm having so many light bulbs go off from recent conversations we've had. There's the one we've had today, obviously, that is just fascinating. But I think about our conversation with Scott White and talking about abortion and the lack of clarity and that almost seeming to be the point is that people sort of self-censor and feel scared of consequences because there isn't clarity. And I think that the work of providing that clarity, I think part of the problem is that that would reveal what is really beneath, what's really underneath. Then you have to actually say like that quiet part out loud. No, you can't talk about the 1619 Project because Black students and white students and Latinx students then might have a greater understanding of the American story. And that would lead people to inevitably see the racism that has been present in our country since its founding. Like, that's the quiet part nobody wants to say. So you don't say it. You don't clarify. You just let people exist in this really fearful state of confusion. And it's just fascinating to me the the themes that we keep seeing played out in all of these culture war issues, which is a lack of clarity and definition, because at its core, it's hateful. I mean, that's just what we're talking about. And all of this stuff too, that happens when there is not an actual problem that needs to be addressed. It's this preemptive strike, because I think like the truth is what you just alluded to is how the change is already here. Like that's just factual. But if we can sort of culturally try to legislate and scare people, then it's like the only defense that some folks have. So yeah, clearly my brain is just firing like crazy. But anyway, culture wars. Boo. (laughs) Yeah. And the other side of the culture wars as well is that they're really effective from distracting Texans from other issues such as our failing electric grid or how we're going to deal with climate change and these other kinds of infrastructure. Yes, like (laughs) these really pressing issues that we could be thinking about, but we're not. I suppose there's a cynical part of me that asks, like, is the whole point of some of this just for people in power to not have to tackle the actual difficult issues that they need to? But I'm not sure that it's quite that strategic. In some ways, I think that it is more about latching on to this trend across the nation of a dominant group of folks, white evangelicals really trying to kind of hold on to that position that they've had that is slowly slipping away from them. Well, thank you. This has been such an informative conversation. I listen to our episodes when they air, and this one I know I'll listen to a couple times because there was a lot of great stuff here. So let's go ahead and transition into our attention mentions where we send our listeners off with some fun cultural content they can consume (laughs) in their free time. So it's just something that has your attention, like an article or a book or a show. Do y'all have anything, Tiffany or Nicole? I'm trying to think. I would love to just make a pitch for a friend's book. Simranjit Singh just this year published a book called The Light We Give. He is the executive director of the Aspen Institute's Religion and Society program, but he is a native Texan and he is a 
first-generation Texan, he's Sikh, and he kind of grew up in San Antonio at a time when there weren't very many other Sikh Texans around, and he wore turban and his father and brothers, or he still does. And so they were visible minorities in San Antonio. And in this book, The Light We Give, he talks about his experiences of growing up as a visible minority in San Antonio. Not all of that was easy. But then he actually draws from his religion of Sikhism, which is really cool because I think a lot of folks who aren't Sikh don't know very much about it. And so this book kind of tells you about this religion. And he talks about the values of his religion that he's been able to draw from to address the kind of hate and discrimination that he's experienced as a Sikh and brown American. So it's a really cool book because there's memoir, there's a Texan story, there's a little bit about religion, there's also a fair bit about just grappling with discrimination and racism as well. And it's really great. And I think everyone should read it. And it's very like, it's not an academic book. It's geared at a general audience, but I'm using it in one of my classes at St. Edward's right now. And my students love it. Great. So you can read it, feel like a smart student. <laughs> I love and so, that. yes, that will be in the episode description, everybody. You don't have to stop and write it down. Nicole, what have you got? I'm actually going to use a recommendation from you, Claire, which is the Citations Needed podcast. It's really fascinating. It is looking at the ways that we are presented sort of narratives in the media from critical point of view. And the episodes I've listened to are, they require some deep thinking. You really kind of have to hang in with these guys. They do a great job of explaining, but it's really interesting and lots of food for thought. The a relatively recent one that I listened to about the way that we look at the homelessness issue is fascinating. Yeah. And they talk about like redlining and just the historic nature of housing and how it has been very racist. They're great. We are big fans of Citations Needed. Man, the one I had in mind is kind of silly. Well, maybe we need I guess, a silly one. We've been really <laughs> okay, deep. Okay. I'll do a silly one. I like to read these articles about Nepo babies, like children of actors who get labeled like beneficiaries of nepotism. And I didn't realize Wyatt Russell, he's Kurt Russell's and Goldie Hawn's son is a Nepo baby because I think he's great. have a little celebrity crush on him. Well, I, I read this article about his top performances and found this movie called Ingrid Goes West, which stars Audrey Plaza. And it was... Aubrey. Aubrey, thank you. Sorry, Aubrey. It was really fascinating. It's about this woman who's sort of obsessed with Instagram kind of like single white females, a woman she follows on Instagram. And it's like a very dark comedy. It's only like an hour and a half. So check that out if you're looking for something to have going on in the background. Not too heavy, but funny and good. And has Wyatt Russell, who he's a cutie, I guess, <laughs> to me. <laughs> I like the trail you just took us on to land on Ingrid Goes West. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That and that's how I found that movie. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Well, thank you, everyone, for listening to this episode. As a reminder, sign up for our newsletter. This is where we provide nice summaries of the episode and can point you to Dr. Tiffany Pewitt's work. And we are just so grateful for your time. This was fascinating. And I really appreciate a deeper understanding of this. So thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Thank you, everybody, for joining me, Nicole Abshire, and my co-host, Claire Campos O'Neill on Go Behind the Ballot. Hopefully, we've demystified some little portion of Texas politics. And we hope that you'll do more with us. 
check out our website at www.gobehindtheballot.com where you'll find links to all of our social media and you will find our community. Let's join together and do more. We hope you'll let us know what is working and we hope you'll join us next week. Thanks everybody and have a good one.